Luke chapter 15. We'll be back in Luke 15 today. Picking up where we left off from last Sunday. And the message you see on the screen there that we were going to be focusing on here today is titled, You're Not Yet Too Far Gone. You're not yet too far gone. And to collect our thoughts around this, I want to tell you a little story about a man I heard about who was walking in the country when he saw a pig with a wooden leg that was sitting outside of a barn. And so he just kind of sat there pondering on this pig for a little bit, wondering how on earth did a pig get a wooden leg when all of a sudden he noticed that the, the farmer, the owner of this pig, was driving down his driveway in his pickup truck. And so the farmer stopped, and this man said, Well, well farmer, t- tell me a little bit about this pig. I mean, tell me the story of that pig in particular, the one with the wooden leg. And the farmer said, Well, let me tell you, That is really some pig. I mean, our house caught fire last April, and that pig dragged my kids out of the house into safety. Also, so that's how he lost his leg, said the man. Well, no, no, not not that way, replied the farmer. But then in January, I I almost drowned, and would you believe that pig swam out through icy water to pull me to shore? So that's how the pig lost his leg, the man asked. No, no, that wasn't it either, said the farmer. But just a week ago, let me tell you, my wife's car slid off of the road onto the train tracks, and that pig broke through the glass to help her out just before the train came through. Aha, said the man, so that's how your pig lost his leg. No, sir, replied the farmer. Well, by this point, the man got a little bit of impatient himself, and so he finally said, then just how did that pig lose his leg? The farmer said, well, you see here, fella, when you have a pig that special, you just don't want to eat it all at one time. (laughs) It sounds to me like that farmer wasn't quite showing the level of gratitude that his pig deserved. I mean, that pig had done some pretty amazing things. But that man apparently did not think too highly of his pig. Well, you know, in general, the Bible doesn't take too high of a view of pigs. Just like this man. In fact, back in the Old Testament, we we read that there were a list of animals which the Jews were not supposed to eat. They were declared to be unclean animals. God was setting his people apart and showing that they were distinct from the other nations around them. And one of the ways they did that was by refraining from eating certain foods. And pigs, swine, were animals that were on that list. Animals that were unclean. Animals that could not be eaten by the nation that God was setting apart to be distinct from the nations. Then over in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, we read that Jesus taught the crowds in his Sermon on the Mount not to throw their pearls before swine, lest they be trampled under their feet. And then back in Luke chapter 8, as we encounter a man who was possessed by a legion of demons, a a, a passage we looked at several weeks back 
we, we encountered in that man who was possessed by these legion of demons that, that ultimately Jesus permitted those demons, when they were driven out, to go into a herd of swine, a herd of pigs, which then ran off of a cliff to the demise of those pigs. Now later, as the early church gets its start, what we find is that Peter will have an envision just as God's about to take him to witness to Cornelius, a Gentile, one who was previously not in the fold of God, just as, just as God is about to compel Peter to go and share the good news with Cornelius, he had this vision as he fell asleep there on the rooftop of these unclean animals that were being dropped down in a sheep before him with God saying, Arise and eat. Likewise, God added to that, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy, including those unclean animals, animals like pigs. And Jesus, likewise, taught over in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, that it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. I say that just to say that there's no need for us to go and fetch our pitchforks and head over to Fuzzies this morning, Okay. But it is worthwhile to note that for Jews around the time of Jesus' life, in the time frame that we're looking at here, as we turn to Luke chapter 15, in this time, there were not many animals that were despised so much as the pig was. To be working among the pigs was to be humiliating work. It was to be doing work that would be frowned upon by the Jews. And who could ever imagine in that day a Jewish man being so far gone that he would not only be working among the swine, but that he would long for the food which was being given to them. This was about as far from sanity as a Jew could imagine he might ever come. But that's where one of the characters that Jesus introduces to us in a parable that we're going to look at here today ends up in his life. And in the end, though they were despised by the Jews, the swine in today's parable show us what must be the most amazing set of pigs and the most amazing things that a set of pigs ever did in the Bible. Because those pigs cause a man at the end of his rope to come to his senses. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty thankful for a pig that was able to do that for me. And the parable we're talking about is perhaps the most beloved parable that Jesus ever spoke. This is a well-known parable. The, the truths of this parable are so rich that we're, we're going to break it into three separate messages over the next few weeks with each one of those messages focusing on a different character within the parable. This week we'll look at the younger son, also known as the prodigal son. Next week we'll look at the father and his faithfulness. On the third week we're going to look at the older brother, the one who is outside and not willing to come in and join the celebration. But it's a rich, rich passage of God's word, so rich that so many people have gleaned marvelous truths from this passage. And some Bible scholars have even deemed this parable to be the prince of the parables. In fact, the great author Charles Dickens once described this parable as the finest short story ever written. It is most commonly known as the parable 
of the prodigal son, or you might have heard of it as the parable of the lost son. Now, it's helpful for us just to establish what the word prodigal means, because it's not a word that we tend to use very often in our day and age, but the word prodigal simply describes someone who spends his or her her money or their resources extravagantly in a reckless or a wasteful sort of manner. A more common word in our regular vernacular might be to describe such an individual as someone who squanders what he has. In fact, that's gonna, that wording is going to be what we find used in the New American Standard translation of this passage. So this could be described as the parable of the prodigal or even the squandering son. Or keeping with the theme of Luke chapter 15, we might simply refer to this as the parable of the lost son because it comes on the hill of two other parables about lost things. And and we've grouped these parables into one series of messages that I've titled God's Lost and Found because that's ultimately what we're looking at here. First, we encountered the parable of the lost sheep. And then last week, last Sunday morning, we, we looked at the parable of the lost coin. And all of these parables were given by Jesus in response to a certain situation that we talked about when we looked at that parable of the lost sheep We looked at that in detail then, but just to kind of recap for you, Jesus is in the midst of a couple of groups of individuals. He's in the midst of, ultimately, that the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees who are surrounding him and grumbling about the truths that he is teaching. But in closer to him, he is welcoming and he is eating with the tax collectors and sinners. Those who were notorious in their day for nothing more than the fact that they had disobeyed God. It was public. It was unashamed. They were obviously individuals who were not walking with God. And Jesus is there sharing a meal with them. And Jesus is ultimately using these three parables, these three stories to convey a deeper spiritual truth. Because that's all a parable really is. A parable is just an earthly story that conveys a deeper spiritual truth. You might even heard it described as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And and in all three of these parables that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 15, he's driving home the one truth that God has a steadfast and a searching desire that those who are lost, those who are apart from him would be found. In each instance... There is an all-consuming search for that which is lost. First, the shepherd searching for his sheep. Then, the woman searching for her coin. And then today, the father searching for his son. And in each instance, when that which is lost is found, there is great celebration. There is great rejoicing. And in all of these parables, Jesus is teaching the sinners who are gathered around him at the table eating with him. And he's teaching the Pharisees who are farther away grumbling about the people who he's eating with. And he's teaching the people of New Vision who are listening just a short 2,000 or so years down the road these same lessons. God wants the lost to be found. In fact, God is willing to commit his time and his energy and his most precious resources to go after the one who has gone astray. And we're compelling those who are members of God's family to join in this relentless search 
for the one that has gone astray. That's why we began last week. Really, we've talked about this for a couple of weeks now about I want every one of us, every one of us who gathers here and claims the name of Christ to have one individual so that when someone asks you who's your one, you can give the name of one individual that you are praying for daily, that you are deliberately trying to reach with the hope of the gospel because God offers this hope and God longs for the lost to be found. And just as God goes after the one, each one of us should be joining in his pursuits, joining in the search for the one who has gone astray. But, you know, it's hard to imagine a situation that would pull at our heartstrings with such intense emotion as the story of a child that has walked away from his or her family to pursue a destructive lifestyle. Maybe the word child is a wrong word. This is a grown individual, but ultimately a child in the sense of relationship who's walking away from his family. It's a story that some of you know all too well because you've either walked in those shoes or you were experiencing the devastation of someone who is walking in those shoes even now. This is the story of broken hearts and sleepless nights. And tear-soaked prayers met by cold shoulders and callous words and unanswered phone calls and disdainful glares that give no thought to the investment that parents have placed in their children or the love that they simply cannot give up for them. But friends, we need to know, we need to hear this raw emotion. We need to see it on display in the words of Jesus because Jesus is not just teaching us about a one-time instance or a happy story. He's teaching us about the raw heart of God for his children when they go astray. Just as we could hardly fathom A sort of situation that might cause us more burden, more heartache, more pain than a child that has gone astray. We need to understand that is God's heart for the one. That is God's heart for those who go astray. And the emotion of this parent who simply cannot give up his or her love or his or her hope for his or her son or daughter, that that one would come home, that's the heart of God. For every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl who is far from him. And if you've never discovered yourself as one of the characters in this parable of the prodigal son, this well-known parable, you probably haven't looked close enough at this parable. Because truth be told, we're all in here somewhere in terms of where we stand with God. And so I encourage you now to listen close and to look for yourself in this parable as we open God's word together to Luke chapter 15. And we'll start in verse 11. I ask if you're able, if you would, please stand and we might honor the reading of God's word. Luke 15, starting in 11. And he, which is Jesus, and he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. 
Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As we focus our attention today on the son who goes astray in this parable, I want to particularly draw our attention to three critical turning points in the life of this prodigal son. And they all have to do with the senses of this one son that goes astray. First, his senses are deceived such that he betrays his father by asking for his estate before leaving his family behind for what he ultimately senses will be a better life. Then, when he's found the foolishness of his ways, he comes to his senses. That is, he, his senses are made clear. He comes to himself, as the literal text would say, and he decides to go home and to beg for help from his father, the same father that he's betrayed. So he comes to his senses and goes home. But even when his senses have been made clear, there's, there's something he can't sense. That is something that is beyond what his own personal senses and personal experiences would expect. And that is the love that his father has for him. It is a love which seeks not condemnation, but compassion. Not a debt to be paid, but a deliverance to be celebrated. Not rejection, but rejoicing. And so we're going to focus as ultimately the son comes to his senses in that third way by meeting his father and learning his father's heart, which was something beyond what he would have sensed on his own. We're going to focus on the son whose senses are deceived and then made clear and then finally overwhelmed. And along the way, we're going to learn a little bit about our own senses, I hope. But let's begin by observing this. Sin will deceive your senses. Sin will deceive your senses. When, when the draw of the world gets hold of this younger son in the parable, we read in verse 12 that he said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. That is, he's wanting some resources so that he can go out and live the life that he ultimately thinks is going to satisfy his deepest 
desires. But he is deceived. The lures of the world have deceived him. As the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And he goes on to say in verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That is, ultimately, John is conveying to us here that the world deceives your senses and compels you to believe that its offerings, although they may be far from God, the world convinces you that those offerings are better than what God has to offer. And this tempts all of us to sin. Sin is simply that which we do which is contrary to God's desire for us, contrary to his will for us. For this son, sin deceives his senses and causes him to do something that would be scandalous in our day, but it was even more scandalous in Jesus' day. This was a day when honor and shame were so much the focus of every individual and every community that for someone to do what this son does would bring shame on the whole place, especially on his father. It was scandalous and sinful to request one's inheritance before his father had passed away. That was the father's sustenance. This was what he lived on. This is what he had worked his life to acquire. This was his own inheritance being passed down to the next generation. It was the father's life savings. To ask for it before he had died was in essence to say, I wish you were already dead. It is to convey to your father that your possessions are worth more to me than your life is to me. And that's what this son is essentially telling his father in verse 12. He's prioritizing his lusts over his father's livelihood. Because his senses tell him that he can live the good life apart from his father. Now, perhaps the bit that would be so shocking to Jesus' hearers that the, the most shocking piece, perhaps, of what, of what transpires in this is, is the fact that the father does not rebuke his son. The father does what his son asks. He complies with his son's request. So Jesus simply says, so he divided his wealth between them. Now, this was a younger son, and God's law through Moses had communicated that the eldest son, the firstborn, would receive a double portion of an inheritance. So we've only got two sons here. Jesus says this man had two sons as we begin our passage out today. So if you kind of do the math on that, if the older son is receiving a double portion and the younger son would receive just one per portion, he is receiving in this moment one-third of his father's estate. So his father essentially finds a way to get him one-third of what rightfully belongs to him. And the son then cashes in on that. We read that next the son launches out into the world because not many days later, we read in verse 13, he gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. That is, the world was calling him. A distant country was calling him. Sin was deceiving his senses. In fact, I see in this passage four ways that the, the younger son's sinful desires deceived his senses. Here's the first one. What he sensed would be emancipating turned out to be enslaving. 
This man was planning to be rid of his father's house. He didn't leave anything behind, okay? The posters weren't still hanging in his bedroom. He didn't have the drawers filled with some clothes just in case I want to come and stay for a night. He wasn't going next door. According to verse 13, he gathered everything together before he left. And he was going to a distant country. That is, he was ready to be free from his father's house. He was ready to be through with this place. Because he sensed that this would be an emancipating sort of adventure. But in the end, he had so little that he had to hire himself out to to a stranger in that foreign country. Because in verse 15 we read that after he had lost it all, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Well, so much for freedom, right? Now he's working for the man. Now he's doing the most despised of all tasks of all tasks in going out and feeding the swine. And, and if the truth be told, there's a little bit of the draw to the distant country in each and every one of us. That is, there's a draw within us that due to our fallen state causes us to wonder if the grass maybe just could be a little bit greener over on the other side. We all, on occasion, are lured by the pleasures of sin to consider what it might be like to go out into that distant country and to enjoy its pleasures just for a season. And here's the warning that we all must heed. That distant country is not very far away. In fact, the distance to that country is measured by the distance between a person and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've given your heart to something else in search of a freedom, you will, in fact, find bondage to less than what you were created for in the end. That's why Peter can say in 2 Peter 2.19, By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. That's why Jesus, in John chapter 8.34, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Because what's true for the prodigal son It's true for us. That which we sense would be emancipating turns out to be enslaving. But secondly, what he sensed would be fun turned out to be fleeting. We read in verse 13 that this son squandered his estate with loose living. When he comes home, his older brother makes it clear what at least some of that squandered money went to. As he says in verse 30, when the son comes home, that his younger brother has devoured his father's money on prostitutes. I'm sure he thought that would be a lot of fun. I'm sure he expected lasting pleasures as he gathered it all up and as he headed out. But in the end, he was left being sent by his new employer out into the fields to feed the swine, according to verse 15. He was there among those despised pigs. And if that wasn't enough, he was so hungry that he would have gladly filled his stomach with the food that they were eating, according to verse 15. There may have been a little pleasure in that sin, but it was a fleeting pleasure. It had no lasting substance. And what makes this so shocking 
is that this father probably knew what his son had in mind and what he was heading out to do when he first asked his father for his portion of the estate. But the father gave it over anyways. And perhaps this father, in his wisdom, knew that his son needed to find the futility of his fun before he would be willing to trust in the treasures of his real home. And let me just say this. Be careful what you ask for in your prayers. Because God may just give it to you. And when he gives it to you, he may do so not as a gesture of blessing, but as a form of discipline. Sometimes our stubborn hearts and our sinful desires require that we must learn from experience what things are not good for us. And when we're unwilling to submit to the Lord's will, we may get what we want, but lose what we had. Samson, for example, got the woman, and he got the sex that he wanted with Delilah, but he lost the strength that he had. Judas got the silver that he wanted, but he lost the life that he had. Jacob got the blessing that he wanted when he deceived his father, but he lost his peace and he had to flee from his home, never seeing his mother alive again. The prodigal son got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. And we must be aware that sometimes what we sense will be fun turns out to be fleeting as it was here for the prodigal son. Thirdly, what he sensed would be enriching turned out to be exhausting you see this younger son obviously did not count the cost before he headed out he hadn't budgeted out his riches he must have assumed that the sin that lured him away would supply his needs and ultimately enrich him in the end but what actually happened was that he spent everything according to verse 14 what he sensed would be enriching turned out to be exhausting And let me just say this, there's nothing more worthless to live for than the life that is lived for yourself. That's not an enriching life. That is an exhausting life. Because the things that you think will satisfy your deepest need never deliver on the advertisements that they put before you. If you live for yourself, you'll never find satisfaction. That's an exhausting life. Fourthly, what this son sense would be feeling turned out to be famine. Now, surely this guy didn't expect to be hungry. He didn't expect to end up not having anything to eat when he started out. He, he thought his deepest needs would be met by what the world had to offer. He thought he'd never hunger with this big life that he assumed lay ahead. But in the end, he found himself in the midst of a severe famine which occurred in that distant country, and he began to be impoverished, according to verse 14. And that's going to be true of you if you seek to be filled by the pursuits of your own passions and the pleasures of your own sins. Any person who wanders away from God the Father will experience a spiritual famine in his or her life. If you've run away from the Lord, our Heavenly Father, don't be surprised if you wake up some days wondering, why can't I find happiness? 
Why, why don't I have any joy? Why aren't my prayers being answered? Why am I so cranky? Why am I so bitter? Why am I so angry? Why do I have constant turmoil and trouble all the time? Because listen, if you're apart from the Lord, you're feasting in a famished land. There's no sustenance there. And the famine that you face may just be the Lord striving to draw you back to Himself. God allows us to choose how we will invest His riches. But He does not allow us to choose the consequences of our investments. He lets us seek out that which we think will make us happy, but He never promises to adapt your life such that your sinful desires will deliver the fullness you were after, keeping you far from Him. He would never want you to be so far and so satisfied from Him. And so I compel you, seek out the Lord who will provide you with lasting nourishment. Don't seek after the lures of sin. And the son who was about to go astray, what did he do? He gathered everything together. He spent a little bit of time in this moment of preparation, right? I mean, before he went out, he got all these things together, according to verse 13. He was making his plans even though he knew that it would break his father's heart. And, and that just causes me to want to ask you and to ask me, what plans are you making that would break your father's heart? It would be so much better for you to just ditch those plans now than to have the chance that you would go away and never come back. Maybe you're thinking about plans to cheat on your spouse or to leave your family. Maybe you're considering plans to sacrifice your walk with God so that you can put a little bit more money in the bank or get a little bit closer to that prize that you've been eyeing. Or maybe you're considering plans to check out of it all and to live the easy life. Or plans to take something that is not rightfully yours. Or plans to deceive other people. Or to tear them down. Or plans to get revenge. Or plans for a, a wrong that's been done against you to be made right by your own accord. What are you gathering together that threatens to lead you away from God? Don't do it. Don't step into that famished land because you may never come back truth be told when it comes to our own righteousness we've all squandered it all we've all exercised the spirit of entitlement that placed our priorities above the one who ultimately made us and loves us and deserves all of us as jesus speaks today he speaks to individuals who have squandered it all for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says in Romans 3, 23. And when Jesus spoke this to his audience 2,000 years ago, he was still speaking to those who had squandered it all. The squandering was just a little bit more apparent in some of them than it was in the others. I mean, for the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus was eating with, the fact that they had sinned, the fact that they had squandered it all was so apparent. 
They had cheated individuals. They betrayed their fellow countrymen. They committed untold wrongs that surely had brought the disdain of their neighbors, had surely brought the shame of their communities. They bore their shame openly. But still, they were invited to come near. Still, they were welcome to eat with Jesus. Still, they were welcome to listen to his word in, in hopes that they might take hold of the hope that he was offering. Likewise, the Pharisees and the scribes had squandered their righteousness as well. I, I, now, sure, they looked clean on the outside, but Jesus had already called them out for refusing to clean the inside of the cup. On the inside, they were filled with robbery and wickedness, Jesus said. And sometimes, just sometimes, our attempts to look like we have it all together on the outside leave us struggling alone with the wickedness that's on the inside. We refuse to let others know that we've squandered it all. And so we put on a nice robe and we go and we eat with the pigs when nobody is looking. But be sure of this. Sin will deceive your senses. That's the first big idea I want you to take away from this parable. Here's the second one. When you come to the end of yourself, your senses get clearer. That's what happens with the prodigal son. He comes to the end of himself. There's nothing else that he can do. He's gotten as far away from his father as he possibly can. He's in the most shameful place that a Jew could be. He's he's serving the pigs and coveting their food. But in verse 17, we see the next big turning point in his life. His senses are changed for the better. In fact, we read, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am here dying with hunger. You know, sometimes it takes famine in our lives before we will come to our senses about our father's riches. That's the sort of thing that Jesus conveyed in his Sermon on the Mount when in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This poor chap was poor in spirit at this point in his life. He had nothing. He had no one. He was at the end of himself. He had exhausted all of his means, and it had just left him in a place of hunger and despair. Impoverished. His hope was lost. But when he came to the end of himself, his senses got clearer. I heard a story of a kite that was flying. And the kite began to talk to itself, you know, as kites are prone to do. And the kite said, if only I could get rid of this string... If this restrictive string wasn't holding me back, then I could really fly. I mean, I could fly above the clouds. I could fly as high as I wanted to. If I could get rid of this string, then there would be nothing to hold me back. But you know, one day that kite got its wish. The string broke, but the kite did not fly high. It came crashing down. You see, the kite did not realize that that same string that held it down kept it up. Cutting the string did not make the kite freer. It made the kite crash. Look, friends, we will always head toward disaster. When we cut our string of dependence on God in search of more pleasure on our own, 
The same string that seems to hold you down keeps you flying high. Because the one who holds the string steers you toward what you were designed to thrive in. The one who holds the string of your life is the one who can allow you to succeed in what he designed you to do. If you cut the string, you better expect that sooner or later, you're going to come crashing down. And sure, there may be no famine in your life right now, but you can be sure that the famine is coming. No matter what you depend upon, no matter how wealthy you may be, no matter how healthy you are, no matter how much power you have, listen to me, friends. You are going to leave it or it's going to leave you. The things of this world cannot be depended upon. There is coming a time when you will run out of resources. You will run out of health or you will run out of strength or you will run out of life itself. And so I ask you, will you confess your dependence upon the Father? Will you yield your life into His hands? His wise, all-powerful, and yet merciful and forgiving hands. Because look, what sets the parable of the prodigal son, apart from the other parables we've looked at in this series, what sets the parable of the prodigal son, apart from the the parable of the prodigal sheep and, and the parable of the lost coin, is this. The sheep is dumb and wanders astray, not knowing how to go back. The coin has no willpower. It has no ability to move on its own. They both must be searched for. But the son, a whole of the son, he has a will. And the son can do something that the sheep and the coin cannot do. The son can repent because humans can repent Humans can acknowledge their wrongs and change their courses. Humans can return to their heavenly father. Sheep and coins cannot. And what sets the parable of the prodigal son apart is that it shows how necessary it is for humans to respond to the famine of their helpless estate if they desire to experience God's mercy. That is, humans must repent. Repentance, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, is just a change of mind that leads to a change of life. It means to change the direction of your life. And listen to me. You will know that you are really serious about responding to the famine in your life when you stop making excuses for your behavior. Now, hold that prodigal son. He could have come up with some real doozy sorts of excuses. He could have said, you know, it was really my older brother's fault. He always picked on me, and Daddy always liked him the best. Or he could have said, you know, if Dad had only given me more money, I wouldn't be in this position. Or he could have blamed it on the booze or on the women or on his employer. He could have made a thousand excuses, but he did not. He simply said, I have sinned. Those three little words. So simple, so short, yet so profound. Those three words, I have sinned, mark the beginning of a new life. Have you ever come to the point where you have confessed, I have sinned? If so, then you are not far from the Father's house. 
Because when you come to the end of yourself, your senses get clearer. And friends, here's the good news about hitting rock bottom. Here's the good news about suffering the famine. Here's the good news about coming to the end of ourselves. Hear this good news, my friends. When you can go no further, you can still go back. When you can go no further, you can still go back. That is, the Father still invites you. He still welcomes you to come home. He still has riches for you. So come to your senses, those of you who are at the end of your rope. Come to your Savior. Come to Jesus who died in your place. Come and find life. Come home, weary sinner. Come home. When you come to the end of your senses, your senses get clearer, but there's one more critical moment in this prodigal son's life. There's one more time when his senses seem to get even a little more clear because this prodigal didn't expect that he was going to come home to a glad welcome. He expected to go home and to get to work. He expected to go home and have to repay his debts. But listen to this last main idea I want you to glean from this parable. Coming to your senses is necessary, but discovering God's heart is wonderful. Even after coming to his senses, this younger son didn't sense what God had in store for him. In fact, there were three wonders that this prodigal son discovered when he returned to his father. The first one was this. What he had expected to be condemnation turned out to be compassion. He said to himself, and he had said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight. That is, he expected to lay his sins before his father. He expected to arrive in condemnation. But he found compassion. For while he was still a long way off, his father said to him, or he saw him and felt compassion for him, according to verse 20. Listen, friends, though you have sinned, though the wages of sin are death, God offers to meet you. And to return his compassion when you return to him. Just like this father met his wayward son. Secondly, what he expected to be rejection turned out to be rejoicing. This son had resolved to say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son in verse 19. But his father was having none of that. In fact, his father ran and embraced and kissed him. The father said to his slaves, let us eat, let us celebrate. And what did they do? They began to celebrate. The son expected rejection, but he encountered rejoicing. When everything else had failed him, he found that one thing never failed him. And listen to me. There is only one thing that I can guarantee you will never fail you. And that is God's persistent love for you. Thirdly, what he expected to be a debt turned out to be deliverance. This wayward and returning son had determined to say, make me as one of your hired men, according to verse 19. He thought that he'd have a debt to repay. But what he found instead was a father who said, this son... Not this slave. This son of mine was dead and has come back to life again. And he was lost and has been found in verse 24. Hear me on this, friends. Coming to your senses is necessary. 
but discovering, discovering God's heart is wonderful. Because God is the Father who welcomes His wayward child with compassion and rejoicing and with deliverance. Coming to your senses is good, but it's only half of the battle. I mean, if we only had our senses that we could come to, then we will still come cowering before the God that we've sinned against. If we only have our senses to credit, then we'll know that we're sinners and we'll commit ourselves to slavery, but we'll still die at odds with the God whom we've sinned against. He may grant us mercy that allows us to tarry, but if our, our senses are all that we found, then slavery and disownership will be our lot. We must go beyond our senses to find what some individuals would say makes no sense at all. Because what God offers to us goes beyond what any of our senses can comprehend. It's more wonderful than that, my friends. It's more marvelous than where your mind could go. Because while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God gave his only son for you. Your senses say, I deserve condemnation. I deserve God's wrath. But his grace, his riches at Christ's expense are what he offers to you. And we come running to the Father. We come finding that he offers to us compassion. That he offers to us rejoicing. We come and find that he offers to us forgiveness and family. That's grace my friends. Even when this man came to his senses, his senses couldn't comprehend that the love of his father was steadfast and true for him. And so I compel you to come to your senses, but I don't compel you to stay with your senses. Come to your senses, but go what is beyond your senses, which is the father's compassions. This ultimately This son who came home had a father who said he was dead and is now alive. And just as the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God, through the gospel, through the one who's died in our place, through the one who is risen from the grave, Christ Jesus, the only begotten Son of God who came as a representative of all mankind and died in our place, his blood being shed to pay the penalty of God's wrath against us, this one offers to us life that though we were dead, we might be living children of Almighty God. As Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way, but the Lord has called, caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And so this story, this story of the prodigal son, this story of the lost son, this story of the son who is tired of eating with the pigs is a story for everyone who is tired of eating with the pigs. If you're ready to go home, then I've got good news for you. The Father is standing in the road, and He is waiting for you. His arms are open wide for you. He knows where you've been, and still He is waiting for you. The only thing that matters is for you to come home. That's what the grace of God is all about. You can come home. You can start over. You can be forgiven. Your slate can be wiped clean. You don't have to live out the rest of your life in hiding. 
You don't have to live out the rest of your life in fear that someone will find you out. You don't have to eat with the pigs forever. It is possible. And it depends on one thing. You have to do what the prodigal son did. You have to come to your senses and say, Father, I have sinned. And I'm going to let you establish the terms of my return. And his terms are nothing less than this. Total surrender. From now on, if you give your life to him, if you come home, then you are his. You are to be about his will. He is to be your Lord. But my friends, along with that, he offers you treasures immeasurable and boundless love. I just want to close by saying to those of you who are gathered here today, you are not yet too far gone. I don't care where life has taken you. I don't care what famine you found yourself in. I don't care how you've given yourself away in loose living the parable of this son who comes home finding a father who welcomes him. It's a parable that guarantees you that if you desire to come home, the father will gladly receive you. He will meet you with open arms. He will welcome you into his household. He will restore you as a son or as a daughter, and he will grant to you life eternal. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, I don't know the heart of those who are gathered here on this today, but I know the heart of my God. And God, knowing your heart, knowing that you do not desire for even one who is gathered in this place to walk away from here today, still lost, still apart from you, God, knowing your heart, I've got to extend in these moments an opportunity for individuals to come to you. God, we've got to take inventory of our hearts today. We can't let a passage like this pass us by without saying, God, what are you calling me to do? God, what famine am I living in? God, do I need to come home? So God, I just pray that by the power of your spirit, you would compel every heart in this room, every mind to focus attention on this question. Do I need to come home? And God, I pray that as that question is evaluated, if there are those who are in this place who would evaluate and say, I have that need, I need to come home. I need to be restored to my father. And Father, I pray that you would help them to know that this is your joy. That, that, that this is not for them. A decision to come into rebuke and to chastisement and to be disciplined and to become slaves. It is an opportunity to become children of the living God. To be rejoiced. To be welcomed. To be greeted with hugs and kisses. To be greeted into the family. So Father, I just pray that in these moments that we now would consider that question. And Father, I just want to pray that if there is a need to respond, that if someone is wandering from you, if someone needs to come home, that you'd compel them to make a decision toward that today. To come to their senses, but to go beyond their senses and to greet the Father with true repentance that comes in faith. Just with that prayer on our minds, I'm just going to ask you with your heads bowed still, if that's a decision you need to make today, if you need to come home, 
Would you just, and, I, and I'm not going to tarry long here, maybe 20 seconds, next 20 seconds, if, if that's where you sense God calling you in your life to make a decision, w- would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Is God calling you home? Thank you, sister. Any others? Anyone else? God's calling you. You know you found yourself in the land of famine. You know you find yourself wandering from Him. But He's calling you back to Himself. Anyone? Maybe 10 more seconds. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. God is moving. Will you join? Thank you, brother. Any others coming home in these moments? Father, I want to rejoice just to know that you, by the power of your word, by the steadfast grace and love which only you could display, O Lord, that you are calling sinners to yourself today. Just as you called me to yourself, Lord, you're calling others to life. You're calling others to family. So, Father, I just pray that in these final moments, as we gather, as we stand, as we sing, that Some of these individuals who've raised their hands would like to be an encouragement to others, Lord, that they would just come forward. Lord, I don't want to embarrass anyone. I know you wouldn't want to embarrass anyone, but this is a decision you want individuals to make public, Lord. I pray you give them courage to do so, that we might just stand together, that we might just celebrate your grace, which calls the weary sinner home. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.